Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. All right, DC Local Leaders, we're back. Thanks so much for tuning back in. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements before we get into the episode. Just want to thank everyone for tuning back in. Cannot wait to tell you more about Kristen Burr, just a fantastic human. Uh, but before we begin, I want to make sure that everyone does know that we are putting out the additional content here with our partnership with Northern Virginia Technology Council. You may have already seen some of that coming out. We are hosting the DC Local Leaders podcast in connection with Northern Virginia Technology Council, iHeartMedia, and Wonk FM are partnered together to bring a series of talks. We're calling it Talk Tech with NVTC, the first of which we put out with the CTO of Appian. The next one coming up is with Virginia Tech Innovation Campus. So be on the lookout for more information about that. It is a video series, so you can find those videos on the DC Local Leaders YouTube page as well as nvtc.org. Uh, there's also clips running on our Instagram page with the bloopers if you'd like to take that, take a look at that. So really excited about that. Want to tell you about Kristen Burr, the person we're going to be listening to today. She is a fantastic human being, as I mentioned. She's the CEO of Homemade Northern Virginia that actively works to help the homelessness problem in our area, whether it's battered women, children, veterans. Uh, you know that here on the D.C. Local Leaders Podcast, we're a big fan of veterans and military service people. Uh, government contractors that support those folks as well. But she tells us all about her own personal journeys through uh, self-care and travel and motherhood and what that's done and how she shows up in the lives of other people, as well as what drew her to founding Siva Prison Yoga, where she takes yoga practices into prisons right around here in the Northern Virginia area. And yeah, thank you so much to everyone who's been liking and sharing and subscribing to our content, whether it's been Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen, even Notecast. Notecast is one of those veteran-owned companies that we support. You know, they're just friends of the show. I met these uh, these guys a little while ago, and they've created an app. It's called Notecast. It allows you to take notes directly from the podcast. You can simply tap the screen where it says transcribe, and it transcribes a note for you. It keeps it audio and written. You can get it either way you like, and you never have to write anything down. So check out Notecast, and uh, would love to get your feedback on that. Listen till the end so uh, Kate can let you know how to reach us with my email. Uh, you can also reach out through Instagram or you know LinkedIn, wherever, uh, wh whatever's easiest to you. So uh, let's get into the episode. Homemade Northern Virginia. Uh, I'm sitting here with Kristen Burr. She's the CEO of this nonprofit that is doing some fantastic things in our, in our local area, specifically in Northern Virginia. And uh, she also has a lot of interesting things as an individual that she's doing. Prison yoga is one of them uh, that I hope she gives us some time to talk about. But how are you doing, Kristen? Very well. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah. Thank you for taking some time to do this. Um, 
you've seen a little bit of the behind the scenes of how this comes together. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I was able to provide you some comedy this morning. <laughs> Let's, uh, why don't we start by letting everyone know what Homemade Northern Virginia is and what you guys do. Absolutely. Um, Homemade Northern Virginia, we are celebrating our 20th year, which is really exciting in 2021. We were birthed by or started by the Northern Virginia Building Industry Association um, in 2001. They, so we use that platform. There are 19 chapters of Homemade across the U.S. And we, typically the chapters are started with, um, by partnering with the BIAs in the local area um, because it gives a platform, basically. It gives us a target market of builders and trade partners because that is who we rely on to do the work that we do. So our entire mission is to support other nonprofits, 501c3s across, we cover Northern Virginia, we cover Winchester. We expanded to Winchester at the beginning of last of 2020. So January took on our first project there. And we are looking forward to pushing into D.C. Um, we just absorbed that charter within the last six months. So moving, moving, um, growing our footprint. But we exist to support nonprofits by building and renovating facilities, which is housing facilities, as well as their programmatic spaces. And what that means is that nonprofits in the homelessness realm across this area, and homelessness is wide, um, it's anyone who, would, who is finding themselves homeless or who would otherwise be homeless. So that can be that's domestic violence victims, that is sex trafficking victims, that is chronically homeless, it's those that are dealing with addiction or mental health issues, that's those that are formerly incarcerated. It's women and children, it's individual men, it's families, so it's far, and that's just a few examples. But the nonprofits, we've worked with over 40 nonprofits across this area, own and have long-term leases with spaces across the area that they use to house individuals in crisis and also to give them wraparound programs and services, really important wraparound programs and services. And they don't have funds. There aren't a lot of grants out there. There aren't a lot of donors necessarily willing to throw money at a renovation. They want to throw it at the programs. And that's really where the focus should be is on the humans that need the support. But as we all know, buildings, homes fall apart. They get heavily used. They um, have issues, whether it's structural or it's safety issues, or it's simply just expanding the space to provide more space to help more people, which is really important one, especially with the last year that we've just come through, the need is off the charts. Um, so when they come to us, they come to us with that project, whether that's an expansion, whether that's building from the ground up, if they own the land, if they own the property, whether that is a build out of a space that maybe they acquired, but it's, you know, the basement hasn't been finished and they can add some more rooms to serve more clients, or it may just be a full renovation of an affordable housing unit, which might look like a townhome or a condo in a neighborhood where it's undisclosed. We come in and we renovate it completely or build it completely. And the beauty of this partnership that we have, not just with the nonprofits, is that my board consists of all of the major, um, major residential builders in the area, as well as some amazing trade partners and other individuals working in and around the building industry. We come in and we pair it with a builder. That builder uses their leverage with their trade base to do the work. Um, and 
we will ultimately save the nonprofits that we do the work for hundreds of thousands of dollars. We can usually promise savings of about 70 to 100% on projects. It really depends on the scope, what's needed, um, how big it is, that kind of thing. But that's usually what we can provide, which is pretty amazing. So we just celebrated in 2020 our 150th project, which was pretty exciting. And with that, we have invested over $18 million into the Northern Virginia community. And over 12 million of that was seen as donations, pro bono work, expertise, labor, product. The building industry across this area is, contains some of the most amazingly generous people I've ever met in my life. And this is what they do day in and day out. They build and they do this work and the trade partners do the plumbing and do the electricity and do the siding and do the trim. And they get to do this work, what they're so passionate about and so good at, for a bigger cause. And the beauty is when this is, construction is amazing in itself, but this is when construction is so much more than construction because every space we touch is changing lives. Yeah, directly, it sounds like. A couple questions. What does BIA stand for? Building Industry Association. Okay. So this is so, NVBI is the Northern Virginia Building Industry Association. Who You mentioned the clients. Like, who are these nonprofits? Who are these other nonprofits that are coming to you? Is it like Oxford House? Is it, I mean, what are some examples? Like yeah, who, so do, some examples, a couple of the examples right now is uh, we have a massive project for Operation Renewed Hope. Um, their focus is homeless veterans. Um, so that is a big project that we're doing right now. Um, almost a 90% savings, I think, on that project. We're doing that project with Christopher Companies. And that will, we it's, it's a build out. It's basically a full renovation of a single family home that is used as a group home for chronically homeless men and women veterans. Um, we have added space. So we actually added a um, an addition that's ADA compliant. So it can now, that space will be able to, it went from three bedrooms and one bathroom, two bathrooms, to four bedrooms and a bathroom for each individual that will call that place home. So and, it's a pretty amazing transformation. Yeah, and so you guys build the space and those folks live there um, and then they get the help that they need to help. Yeah, yeah. and Operation Renewed Hope is an amazing nonprofit in the local mm -hmm. area. Yeah, they will run the programs and get those the humans that will end up moving in there back on their feet. So they give them the wraparound programs. So that's one of the big things about Homemade Northern Virginia is we don't do work for individuals. We only work with other nonprofits for the reason that there is that support, right? So if you only give somebody a roof or you only renovate their space and they're not getting the other programs and services that they really, really need, you're doing them a disservice because the reality is, is they're not going to be able to get back on their feet simply just because they're housed. Mm -hmm. They really need to understand the other components, whether it's addiction services or mental health issues um, and programs and therapies and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and when you're coming out of homelessness uh, in any capacity or you're coming out of a domestic violence situation, there's a lot of trauma. Right. And if you've been homeless, if you've been incarcerated, if you've whatever that looks like, there's going to be a lot of trauma that needs to be worked through. And a lot of, you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. so those programs and services, whether it's for food insecurity or it's, um, you know, an after school program for kids that are at risk, whatever those programs are, they're necessary to help people get back to where they need to be. Yeah, that's fantastic, because that's kind of where I was going with that question. Is there something else that supports yeah. them there?
you mentioned something that was really great. We don't know what we don't know. I mean, a big part of this podcast is leadership development mindset and things like that and understanding and being okay with understanding that we don't know what we don't know and willing to learn those kind of things. There's that phrase applied in a whole different way, right? Like yeah. you can't, giving someone a home is, an, is only part of the problem. And you guys are actually, it sounds like purposely going uh, and helping nonprofits that are solving the holistic problem mm-hmm. for those human beings to help them become better. Yeah, uh, or absolutely. heal. Really, it's not become better. It's healing. Right? No, they, it's they, just healing. You know. Healing and moving forward and learning where you can sort of, you know, change and evolve. And, you know, I mean, trauma can be something that you experience as a kid. It can be something that you experience in the current. It can also be generational trauma. You know, there's generational homelessness. And so if you've only known homeless shelters, moving into a townhome isn't going to do you any good if you don't know how to really function in that capacity because you're also dealing with a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And so the nonprofits, the beauty is, is with working with them is they understand that my job is to make the space beautiful, not just from a safety standpoint or an efficiency standpoint to make sure that there aren't any issues, you know, a home is a home regardless of who owns it. And so issues like mold or issues in the foundation or structural stuff, whatever that is, it's constant. And with nonprofits not having the expertise, let alone the capacity to deal with that, that's where we come in. And in the bigger picture, we are providing dignity. You know, a granite countertop is just a granite countertop until it's not, until it's something that when you've been in and out of homelessness, you may be used to, you know, some of the institutions you may be used to cafeteria style food, cafeteria style food, sleeping on somebody's couch, sleeping in your car. So being gifted or having the opportunity to move into a space that is beautiful, there's pride, there's hope, I think, and kindness. And, um, you know, that's what clients, they need that to heal. Not, not to mention that the staff and the volunteers that are doing the hard work, when you change a space, you change their experience too. Yeah, I mean, I've volunteered at some homeless shelters in the past and, and done quite a bit of work with uh, St. Elizabeth's at 801 East. Some of it was is just kind of getting into a, a mindset of like, it's okay for me to have these nice things, um, you know, because at that point they'd been living in a certain way or we just get kind of stuck in our ways, right? We get We dial down a temperature. We have an internal thermostat that's at a certain temperature and anything above it feels uncomfortable just like anything below it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, worth is um, something that is necessary. I think it's part of the process and understanding that the experiences, whether it's homelessness or it was incarceration or it was addiction, is simply a part of somebody's story. It's simply a chapter. It doesn't define who a person is or define their path or their future. And so giving them a a place that um, is dignified makes them feel worth makes them know that they're worth way more than than maybe where they're at and that they they can work towards something else yeah and i think that's really really important yeah i mean you're directly impacting the community just boots on the ground like people right human beings um so that's awesome and and so there's 170 to 100 percent savings to the nonprofit clients that you have who well so who owns the properties usually is it the nonprofit? it's the nonprofits. yep okay yeah and then they're getting the renovation work done for mostly free if not completely yep uh, well at no cost right it's yeah. the volunteering of the time of the community that you coordinate and the pro bono donations from the trade partners and the builders okay. that are really doing the work so whether it's countertops or paint or trim they're the ones that are making those don- donations to of the materials. Pro- of materials of all of it labor their okay. knowledge 
Um, same with architects, whoever we have on the project. Yeah. Yeah. So is, is there any state or federal funding that comes to this program to support this countywide? Fairfax, anybody? No, we, um, you know, every once in a while, the nonprofits will get a small grant from the county, depending on the situation and who owns the property. But no, homemade as an entity does not get any government grants or any government funding. We are solely reliant on our private fundraising. We do it. We have four fundraising events a year um, that raise a lot of our dollars. And then we also, you know, and we rely on in-kind donations, obviously, as well as um, personal and company contributions. Yeah. Well, how did you find yourself in uh, in a nonprofit in the nonprofit world? Is that something that you've always been passionate about, or when you left because uh, you're from Nebraska, you went to the University of Nebraska, right? I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, give give me a little bit of a backstory on how you found yourself in this position and why you knew this was something you wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was born and raised in Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, actually. Um, moved. Um, so I actually graduated with my undergrad. Um, and went right into corporate because that's I think with a mass uh, with a MBA that's sort of what you do you go into the business world right yeah and I quickly realized that I loved the work but I wasn't passionate about the work and I had been doing a lot of philanthropy work um, just in my own time you know during college I mentored a couple girls that were in high school which I am still I still have a relationship with both of them which is really amazing and I did, I kind of coordinated a lot of philanthropic work within that company at the time because I was the one that loved it and tried to inspire other people to love it too. And at a certain point, I just think I woke up one day after a few years of doing that and said, this is not for me. This is not where my heart is. And wanted to find a way to sort of merge both my, my passion for philanthropy and my career. And I was able to do that. Um, and the first job I actually took was with the MS Society in Nebraska, and that was getting my feet wet in a nonprofit. And I just, I realized very quickly, it's still a business to be run. It's still hard work, sometimes really hard work. Um, but it's beautiful work. It gives me a much bigger reason to wake up every morning. It gives me, um, you know, I mean, it's a legacy I'm leaving for my daughter, just doing for others and selfless service and the importance of doing what you love really mm-hmm. and so yeah I've been in nonprofits um I moved quite a bit and landed in Virginia about five five and a half years ago or so and um stumbled into this particular organization and have been here ever since and yeah have just absolutely loved it yeah I mean you were director of community development with uh, MS Society so you were I was yeah. how, how did that prepare you for doing what you're doing here like, what do you think, it, you know, yeah. was that impactful for you? Well, funny enough, when I first started there, I actually started as the CFO and realized very quickly that I had a finance degree and numbers just were not where my heart was. Yeah. Um, I was good at them, but I really needed to be making a difference in the people department. That was where I really needed to be. And so, yeah, it absolutely prepared me because I was planning some smaller events and really sort of growing my outreach skills, I guess, in that position. And then as I've been in a couple of nonprofits since, but then when I came here, you know, I mean, this is all about networking. This entire mm-hmm. position um, is about networking. An executive director wears a thousand hats, yeah. um, but it's the people. It takes a village to do this work, no matter what your cause is, no matter what reaching out and talking to nonprofit 
um, directors all the time and making sure that they what their needs are but then I'm very much you know have my feet in the corporate world because of who does the work for us and who I work with day in and day out to manage our construction projects so needing to um, to know how to get out there and really um, touch people and make sure that they understand what we do and why we do it yeah um, so I think that's been the, that was the biggest takeaway is just I was prepared. I just didn't realize how prepared, but that definitely helped. Right. Sounds like you built a lot of skill sets. And then you, you did some independent consulting and some marketing and business development for nonprofits for a while, too. So I, I, I can only just hearing you speak. It sounds like you honed in on a lot of skill sets of sort of a business development mindset for someone who may want to get into the nonprofit world. What do you think are some of the what would you suggest for them to kind of pay attention to as they go along? Should they should they understand finance and, and that sort of background or business development more or? Yeah, so it's funny once I sort of got into because it's there's this weird dynamic, and I mean, if you ask anybody sort of in the nonprofit world if they came from corporate, how they did it, or why not even why they did it, but how they did it, I think for, especially early on there was this mindset that if you were coming from corporate, you didn't have a nonprofit mindset, and so mm. it was harder to get in. Once you're in, you're in a why nonprofit, and I'm not sure. I'm not really. I haven't fully figured it out. Other than I think nonprofits sort of. There's a stigma around it being all heart and being compassion. But at the same time, it's a business. I mean, it's a nonprofit, and, but, it's, but it's, not, it's not that different. And so coming in, I think, prepared me um, having an undergrad in business and then having a master's degree in business is that there are things like I understand the heart stuff, but there has to be an in-between. Because if you only understand the heart stuff and the people stuff and not the business side of things, how do you run a organization that's going to flourish and be financially stable and lead people mm-hmm. to continue the work and want to get behind you to do this work, whatever the, whatever that mission is. So I do not think that if you get an undergrad in business or that you have a degree that isn't necessarily um, particular to this sector, that you should ever let that deter you because we need just as much diversity in the nonprofit sector as there is in the corporate sector. And so never give up. Yeah. Even if you apply for, you know, several nonprofits and that is the mentality of the leadership is that if you have no experience in nonprofits that you're probably not a good fit, don't give up because you'll stumble into someone like me who sees that as a completely a, a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. And I also think volunteering, give your time. Get used I think to doing that. get used to doing it and really understand the dynamics. And if you volunteer within the nonprofit sector, it's amazing. You know, we have an intern program that, um, you know, we usually have several interns a year. It's like the um, the amount of hats that they get to wear just by sitting in this office with us because we're small staff. So they get to really kind of dive in and get their feet into all of the different aspects, whether it's for us, it's projects and for us, it's fundraising and marketing. And if they get that experience, they can also kind of decide what path they want to sort of head into because a lot of nonprofits, you know, have development positions, have marketing positions, have whatever their programs are or social work that kind of stuff and so you really kind of understand what is even your interest because there are a lot of causes and a lot of amazing causes yeah I think do some of the work before you even you yeah. know, necessarily even look to get paid for it make sure you understand your why yeah oh that's important have you yeah. is that coming from Simon Sinek and, and have you read that book? that is one of my favorite books yeah. yeah 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 but no I mean I think it is understanding because if you understand your why other people will understand your why and follow you. You have to be, um, you have to be passionate. passionate. Yeah, 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 you absolutely do. 
Yeah, well, that's great advice. Um, and they can also volunteer, it sounds like, here with Northern Virginia Homemade and have access to any number of nonprofits that are also your clients and get to know the people and what yeah. they've done and ask questions about their background and, and use some of that um, that sort of business development mindset. Let me go out and meet some people and yeah. find out if this is really something I want to do. It could be someone who's mid-career and in their 30s um, or you know, any age, right, that yeah. maybe wants to make a shift or doesn't, wants to do something else and contribute. So I want to make sure that we had the chance to get that out there. Um, but now, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit, right? Because yeah. you... I've gotten to know you a little bit, and you've got some amazing things going on. You're, you're very well-traveled. How many? Do you know how many countries you've been to? Forty. Forty countries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot. That's <laughs> it's not a, enough. It's, it's not, not enough. enough. No. You're a big-time travel person? I love it. What do yeah. you learn on your travels? Is that? It sounds like that's a big part of how you've become who you are and how you connect with a lot of people. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, growing up in the Midwest, traveling was not a big part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't even start traveling until I was my first real trip, um, international ish. Where'd you go? Was, uh, the Bahamas, but this was like the first, like out of the country. Okay. Um, was my senior year in high school. Class trip. Class trip. Yep. And then I think that's sort of, it it was kind of a wild trip, but I think that's sort of where I caught the bug. And then shortly after that, I made it to Europe with um a couple friends actually we backpacked so it's one of those things where i just it hit me and it hit me hard and i realized but the um, what you learn is there's hardly it's hardly to be able to put that into words what you learn with the people and the cultures and just the the planet is huge but it's also very small when you start traveling and sort of get out there but there are some magical places that need to be seen and need to be understood and other cultures and other um, ways of life to really understand that how much of a bubble we live in here. Um, and it's beautiful. I, th- yeah. I mean, the people I've met and the experiences I have had are just, they're life-changing, life-affirming. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love the quote, um, what is it? Something about being lost. You're not really lost. Um, wander people who wander are not always lost or whatever something like that i have it um on a thing in my wall at home but it reminds me like you know we're i think you find yourself when you travel Mm. even more so than you do anywhere else because when you solo travel or you travel with people no matter what you're doing you're experiencing something that um and it's your experience it's your perspective but you really open your mind when you um when you travel outside of, I think outside of the U.S., but even within the U.S., you know, wandering through national parks, hiking, making it an adventure. Do you do a lot of solo travel? Is that typically how you do this? I have done a lot of solo travel. Yeah, I've yeah. also done a lot of um, a lot of travel. You know, meeting friends or, but and you meet people all along the way, yeah. and it's it's just been really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've always liked meeting strangers. I. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm one of those people where people that know me, they say, you've never met a stranger. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I talk to everybody and there, something happens. Right. You get to know other people and understand a lot about the human condition that way, I think. Uh, how, how, what do you think? Yeah. No, I think you do. Um, I think it's just it's not just the experience of traveling, like the actual journey of traveling, the getting on the plane, the dealing with airports, that whole experience. But it's once you get to where you're going, 
or wherever that is, you know, where there's other languages that are spoken or other cultures or different holidays that are experienced, um, different ways of life in general, maybe even just shopping or being a tourist somewhere. I mean, being open to that experience, but embracing the moment and understanding that the world is wide and the planet is big, but we're really all the same. No matter where we grew up, no matter where we were born, that's just a matter of chance. Yeah. But that we really are all the same. And I think too often those who don't travel don't see that. Yeah. Because, um, again, it comes back to that you don't know what you don't know. And if you're not willing to learn, then you'll, you'll never really understand it. But I think everyone should travel. Yeah. <laughs> I know not everyone necessarily agrees, but I think um, it opens up your mind and your world. Um, and the things you can learn from other people just mold you and help make you who you are. Yeah, it sounded like what you were saying was that it opens up a certain mindset. It opens your mind. Uh, what, what Do you have a morning routine? Like, what do you do? Are you a meditation person? Are you a quiet time person? Do you read? Let's, I mean, I asked you like four or five questions all at once, right? <laughs> That's I'm okay. sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. So morning routine is a little more chaotic than I would like to admit most of the time because I, I have an eight-year-old yeah. um, and I'm a single mom. So mornings can be depends um but it can be a little chaotic trying to get us both out of the door so the structure is probably not there as much as i would like but self-care is a huge component of my life yeah what does self-care mean to you self-care means like well it's vast i mean the traveling is self-care to me to me that is a part of my self-care um and traveling just a road trip two hours away to me is just as much of an adventure as traveling 20 hours away to somewhere in the middle of Africa. It doesn't matter. I mean, like you you make your adventure what it is. Um, but no, self-care is the components that I need to make sure that my mental health and my mental wellness, um, both body, mind, and spirit are good. Um, and I try to practice what I preach as much as possible. Um, my side hustle is that I'm also a yoga teacher. Yeah. And so I'm constantly talking about these things and preaching it to other people. And I really try to do the work myself. But it means a lot of things. So I do have more nightly routines because I'm able, once my daughter goes to bed, I do do meditation. I love meditation apps. You know, all too often people sort of think, yo or think yoga and meditation. There's certain stigmas with some of those practices. Um, and that's, of? well, that's a Western thing, you know, right. it's. Um, that it's not necessarily for everybody or that you have to sit on a meditation cushion for an hour because that's meditation. Right, that it looks it, a certain way. That it looks a certain way. And I mean, you know, commercials and the commercialism of the practice doesn't help yeah. that much. Hatha yoga is sold as yoga in general, yeah. right? So yeah, when we're looking is, at yep. the position, the, like moving your body in a certain right. way is what we understand to be yoga. But there's seven yoga sutras and it's more than just that. It is a lot more than that. It's breathing and it is, yeah. and meditation can look like five minutes sitting in your car with your eyes down. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. just finding that moment of peace and that moment of mindfulness to really kind of center yourself to breathe, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, so I mean, getting on my mat, like I truly believe um, that getting on my mat, I mean, it makes me a whole different person and yeah. I'm sure everybody around me would thank thanks me for that. Um, but I also do, I mean, I do road biking and I read and um, 
yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of components to, to my self-care routine, but I do try to fit that in as much as possible to make sure that I'm a good human. Yeah. Because if we're good inside and we love ourselves inside, we're going to reflect that and be much better to everyone around us. Do you have a strict, is it rigid for you or are you just kind of, this evening I'm going to do these things, maybe tomorrow, it sounds like you do it in the evening, not the morning. I do it right? more in the evening. It just depends how my morning sort of flush out. Right. Um, I do make, I mean, working out and being active in the, my mat time, my yoga time and my meditation are a priority, but it's never, it's not necessarily at the same time every day. I wish it could be. Um, but no, there are days where I leave, you know, the office because I know I need it and I will go find my a yoga class or go home and get on my mat just because that I know what I need. I know mm. that's what I need at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I come back and I'm a whole nother person, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but meditation too. Meditation, again, like for real, like I can pull up to a meeting and I know that I need something. And I um, there's a couple apps that I love just for guided meditation just because sometimes that helps me get into that space. Like Calm um, or like what are some? Headspace is one of my favorites. 10% okay. Happier is a good one. Yeah, but those um, just sort of help, especially in a moment where, you know, it's a little harder to shut off because it's really just turning off that chatter in the mind. Mm-hmm. And we all, all need that yeah. probably more than we like to admit. Individually. Yeah. Yeah. Just working on the inside before yeah. we, you know. Um, so you kind of skated by this. You said that you're a yoga teacher, uh, but you're not just a yoga teacher. <laughs> you're a yoga teacher that takes yoga into prisons. I do. Yeah, I do. talk to me about, what's it called? Siva Yoga. Yeah, it's called Siva Prison Yoga. Um, I founded the program for, it's been four and a half years now. My thought process was is that I love yoga. Yoga has the practice as a whole, which um, is not just the poses or the shapes or, you know, the, the asanas, depending on who you're talking to. It is so much bigger than that. It is one of the most incredibly therapeutic practices from a thousand years ago that um, I think sometimes with, you know, the goat yogas and the drink beer and wine yogas and those kinds of things that we see ads for all the time, it kind of gets lost in translation, how therapeutic the practice really is. And so, yeah, when I got my teacher, um, my teacher certificate, I realized that I needed to pay it forward. Mm. Like, Yoga is one of those practices that saved me through a lot of things, whether it was divorce or um, I had had a diagnosis of Crohn's disease and I got really, really sick. There are so many things that it had kind of saved me through, and I realized that I wanted to be able to bring that practice to a population that would not otherwise have access, but should. Yeah. And it sort of just worked out being here, working for Homemade. um, I had a connection to the um, programs department at the Fairfax County Adult Detention Center, which is where I started the program. We kind of fell into each other's lap. You know, I called her and she said, I've been looking into this. And and I'm like, well, I would love to do it. Kind of like, do you have anybody teaching yoga in the facility? And she said, we don't, but I've looked at other programs because there's one called Prison Yoga Project, which is where I started some of my training. Um, so I'm considered a trauma-informed yoga teacher, which means that I have my teaching certificate, um, but I also went ahead and got over 100 hours of continued education in the trauma-informed yoga, which means teaching to people where they're at, meeting them where they're at, and taking into consideration a lot of trauma that's been in the body and the mind. So just being very compassionate yeah. and very aware of what you're bringing to the classroom. 
So yeah, so I've been teaching. Um, the program started. We started a women's um, class on the maximum security side. So um, the, but they were open to this. It sounds. Oh, like. they were they, very. They, open it was, to wasn't it, yeah. a strange thing for you to say. Hey, I want to do yoga. yoga. I think it was a little strange, but it. But she was interested, and so we talked about it. And you know, within a very short period of time, we um, had a class going. And for the female. For right. we started with females. Yep, really just to sort of get everybody familiar with the the new program in the facility because there there at the time there weren't a lot of holistic programs. Yeah. It's um, you know, there's anger management and there's GED classes and that kind of stuff, but this was a little outside of the comfort zone of some of the deputies. And, um, was it mandatory for them or did they volunteer for this? The, so the, the students, yeah, the yeah. students could volunteer for this. Um, and then there was no end date set for the program. So instead of doing like a 12 week program and then rolling in new students, we decided just to keep it open ended. So as long as you wanted to be in the program, you could, cause it was one of those things you don't want yoga and then have it taken away. Yeah. Like once you realize the power of breathing and just sort of sitting in yourself and movement, um, in a place where there isn't a ton of activity and movement, um, it's a beautiful thing to connect to your body again. Were you bringing all the mats and everything for them too? So I had some very generous um, donors who ended up donating mats. So the mats and stuff all stay in the classrooms there, uh, mats and blocks. And yeah. um, I would bring in books on occasion and handouts and that kind of stuff. And yeah, so we transitioned from just women to because, you know, the world works. 90% of yoga teachers are women and 90% of those incarcerated or approximately are male. And so it was one of those things getting past the having a female yoga teacher teach male, male maximum security inmates and understanding really what that was going to look like and making sure everybody involved was comfortable with that. Um, took a little convincing, but yeah. it worked and it has been a beautiful thing for four and a half years. What's an average class size? So classes are usually capped um, around 12 to 18. Just depends on the facility. Um, currently, my program is in the Loudoun County Adult Detention Center as well as the Fairfax County Adult Detention Center. We have this program obviously had to be shut down with COVID right. with the hopes of going back in, I hope, sooner than later. Um, but I think when we, right before everything sort of closed down, we had... Um, I think I had about six teachers, six teachers and about 10 classes between the two facilities. So you've, so yeah, let's talk about the actual nonprofit of SIVA. So yeah. you, you've been able to help other people train to also yes. do the same thing you're doing. Yes. So they will, they um, come in and yeah, so I vet teachers to teach for me to, to basically expand the program because there's been such a need. Once we started and had the classes, we started, um, one of the deputies who, you know, has become a friend of mine through this process, did some, pulled some statistics to really sort of understand. And so we could also t show other people how the program was working. And when they say, why yoga in jail, you know, um, sometimes the thought process is that they're there to be punished rather than rehabilitated, which so programs like this to someone who doesn't know or doesn't fully understand may look frivolous or maybe looks like something that they don't that the students don't deserve yeah. which it's a whole nother conversation right um but holistic practices like this really help students work through anger i mean it starts with trauma but then there's a lot of anger a lot of stress a lot of chronic pain a lot of chronic illness a lot of things working just living and um 
living day to day in a place that's, you know, the, the dynamics there are very stressful. And who knows what the life was on the other side and then when they're going to go back. So there's so many factors to this, but being able to really dive into themselves and find a place of mindfulness and find a place on the mat, reconnect to their bodies, sort of get their mind right, can be really, really powerful practice. Um, and so once we sort of pulled these statistics and we realized that um, it's been a little while since I looked at them, but it was like a 76, 76% decrease in altercations or situations with the students that were in the program. I mean, that's a really impactful stat. And so it kind of was like, whoa, yeah. this is working. This really is a thing. And so we ended up expanding. And so we had a lot more classes. Fairfax County has a program, a STAR program. It's their recovery program and that actually had I have a meditation teacher that went in and taught meditation and mindfulness and that was part of their curriculum which is really pretty cool Loudon has their um their similar program there that um yoga was part of their part of the curriculum it was a required part of that program so it's really pretty cool that it became so important that the guys were actually required to go and the feedback from the from my students um, is just, I mean, that in itself speaks to the power of the practice and just the kindness that goes with bringing in something. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know they got a lot out of it and I have so much feedback from my former students just reiterating what the, what yoga or what that practice of meditation really did for them. Some of them when they got out, but how it healed relationships how they avoided altercations with other inmates because they stopped and breathed, you know? I mean, there's so many examples of that. But the bigger picture is, I mean, I think I selfishly get maybe more even just from going in there and just being part of their journey and being able to bring a practice that would otherwise be completely inaccessible and teaching them just how to care about themselves again. This is a fantastic program that you're doing, and uh, it makes perfect sense that just knowing, just getting to know you, that you would be doing something like this in addition to homemade. What sparked you to do that? Mentors or teachers, or is there, was that, I mean, like, I don't, where did that come from? Was it an organic thing, or? It was kind of organic. Um, I think it just, me being, sort of being fueled by the practice and wanting to, Like I had selfishly gone through teacher training because I wanted to teach, but I think it was also because I needed to heal myself, right? Yeah, you talked about, so Crohn's disease, like how did that affect you? What was going through your mind when you realized that you had this? What is it? And what are you doing to kind of, how are you healing through that? I mean, that's a a thing, right? It's a thing. thing. Yeah, it's a um, chronic illness that sort of manifest itself in your liver or your colon and your intestines and it was pretty bad i was diagnosed in 2009 how old were you then 29 so young right that's yeah not, is that common that someone that young would be diagnosed um, with you, or is, is, does it matter that what age you are it doesn't really matter i think the thought process at one point was that it was usually older people but then my brother was diagnosed at 11 hmm. so it is definitely something that's hereditary um but it's one of those it just it kind of went from bad to worse. I mean, once I was diagnosed, it was kind of a, a quick snowball effect of just the health issues. Um, anybody who has it, yeah, I mean, it, it can put you in a pretty dark place. But I quickly, because my health was so bad, I quickly, my whole workout routine, my eating habits, everything kind of had to shift because that's all I could do. 
mostly I went vegetarian and then I also really had to focus on yoga because that was the one practice that I could really, really do. Fast forward, um, it's been eight years. I've been in medical remission and I've had zero symptoms, zero issues. I haven't been on medication for eight years and I do credit just shifting lifestyle changes, right? Yeah. And so that is really like that and going through a divorce and having a baby and being a single mom, like there's just so many life things. Moving, I moved three or four times in the matter yeah. of five or six years. Like that just all, you know, takes its toll and then the, the bits and pieces in between. But it just, I always found myself on my mat and that was my safe place. We all need that safe place. Yeah. I mean, did you, is that how you respond to fear? Like, how does fear affect you? Like, what do you do? Because it sounds like you've had some scary things going on in your life and uh, or just uncertainty. Right. And you found a way to continue to take steps through that. But what how are you doing that? Were you reading something at the time or did you have the benefit? I mean, you have a mindfulness practice. What someone who's going through something similar, what can you say? I would like to say that there was some book out there or that there was some person that I turned to to get me through that because I, I, I could still probably use that on occasion. But no, I think I had to turn within and realize that resilience is a, a beautiful thing. Um, strength. You, you know, if I saw a thing the other day and it said we've lived through 100% of our worst days. So just keep going, right? And I mean, I think that's really important to note is that it's hard, but we always get through it. You know, we've lived through everything that we've been through. So, no, I really looked inside and that my spiritual practice, my yoga practice is really what I, I know I can come back to my mat and I know it's a safe place. I can connect back to myself and there's gratitude in that. Like just mm -hmm. really understanding what is good, what is going right. Yeah. You know, we're always going to have ebbs and flows, but just staying on top of it. I think it's all perspective. I think it's really finding joy, finding mm -hmm. the things that are beautiful finding in the in the little stuff too right like yeah you're not talking about big things no i mean like. my daughter and i chase the moon you know i mean we but you know i mean just finding the the beauty in the chaos i yeah. think is really really important for me um and knowing that this too shall pass you know i mean there's dark stuff but then there's a lot of light on the other side of it yeah. and i think staying focused there as opposed to turning to someone to get me through it or something specifically it's just it's in me yeah everything i need is within me and um just pushing forward and thriving for everyone around me just as much as i do it for myself these examples of just your own life experience of traveling and and going through some personal adversity uh physically and emotionally and going through a divorce um, you also mentioned something else earlier, you know, body in the mind and in the uh, trauma in the body and the mind, right? Trauma is held in our body, too, and kind of helps you show up in the lives of other people, especially the women you work with here. Yeah, absolutely. So I try to lead by example. Um, I think that's really important is I think vulnerability, although not always my strongest point, is one of those things that I'm trying to be because I think being open and being authentic is really, really important, especially when you're trying to lead. Mm -hmm. um, anybody can manage, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's vastly different than when you're really trying to lead and inspire mm. and foster change. Is and that, is what do you think the difference really is between a manager and a leader? I think, I think leading you're you're involved, you're engaged and you're aware of the people that not just work for you, but the people that you work with and empathy, like understanding we all have our own stuff, right? Like really understanding and not 
um, dictating or telling them to do things necessarily different than I'm doing them, right? Like I'm part of the team. This is my team. Mm -hmm. um, we work together. Everything we do is together. But I wouldn't be what I am without the people that I have around me. Yeah. You mentioned the word vulnerability earlier. And I've talked to a lot of, uh, talked to a lot of leaders and they talk about vulnerability and how that helps them. But uh, can you think of uh, a painful experience that you can look back on? And at the time, you were very vulnerable. But now you look back, it actually helps you show up in doing everything that you do. How do you narrow that down to one? I think my divorce would probably be the most, I don't know, prominent one maybe because I moved to Virginia with um, my daughter's father and didn't know anybody. Mm. Like we moved here. He was in the military. Moved here and got divorced pretty shortly after we moved here. And I mean, I think just in general, divorce, you know, there's people that don't believe in it. And then there's people that believe in it. Or there's people that are, you know, that bigger thing. We only live once and you should be happy. Right. And that is absolutely my philosophy. And so every part about that went exactly the way it needed to. But that it was a very hard, a very vulnerable place to be and very painful, very painful. No matter the divorce, no matter the situation, no matter the relationship, no matter right or wrong, it's always going to be painful. And when you're living in a new place and you're the mother of a three-year-old, like there's a lot of unknowns um, and not having very much support. I think that was the hardest place for me is realizing that most of the support I got was from strangers and people that were new in my life. Feeling of loss, maybe? A feeling of that and yeah, having expectations that, you know, and then being disappointed yeah. on top of just the experience itself. Just grief. Yeah. Yeah. But then realizing that although I knew it was who I was and that I would thrive and that um, that sort of fueled me to continue down the path of just keep moving forward. I had to move, keep moving forward for my daughter, meaning that I just kept trucking. I kept doing, I mean, I had work that I loved. I had my yoga practice. Um, I was getting ready to start the yoga program. Like everything just really fell into place, but it was fueled from a darker space which probably somewhat fuels why I do the work that I do. I mean, just hearing you speak and, and hopefully everyone listening can see that there's just been a culmination of a lot of small events that have, you know, built this mindset in you. Yeah. Um, did you feel it shifting when it was happening or is it only retroactive that you can see, look, I'm a very different, I think differently now. Um, so when I look back now, I realize how much of a shift happened in that process. I don't know that I fully realized the transformation through the process because in my head, I just had to keep moving forward to make sure that I kept my head above water for this tiny human that I was now raising. Those alone moments, are, it sometimes gets a little hard, right? Because then you're just stuck with yourself. You're alone with yourself and that's not always pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be human. Humanness is messy, right? Yeah. Um, but there were some things, um, some books, you know, that I did the untethered soul mickey singer yeah 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 and um the book of joy by dalai lama yeah and, yeah really good like those were the kinds of books that i looked for and those are the ones that i tried to keep on my nightstand and those are the ones that i kept you know sort of reading and you know and now it's shifted a little bit i love Brene brown and just people with purpose and with just you know just real direct messages that just make sense and like I can relate to some of that. People listening, hopefully they got to know you as a person, but also understands a little bit more about what homemade Northern Virginia does. Uh, this was great. I appreciate it. Uh -huh.
Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're a business leader and have questions on your lease and how it impacts your business's opportunities to grow or have questions about the market, you can reach Philip directly at philip.nathram at transwestern.com. He'd love to speak with you. Until next time.